Hey y'all, and welcome to the Parkies Podcast. My name is Allison, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm really excited, so for this Mother's Day, I have a two-part series with a mother and daughter duo that grew up um, and had their career in Yosemite National Park. And so the first part of this two-part series is with Karen Amstatz, and she is a park ranger for Yosemite National Park at Tuolumne Meadows. And then part two, I interview her daughter, Eliza, and what it was like to grow up right outside and also in the national park. So get pumped. We got a special Mother's Day thing going on. And if you haven't yet, please call your mother because it's important. Or if you don't have a mother, call whoever was your mother figure or someone important to you. Um, (laughs) So in this part one, I interview Karen and she is a naturalist for Yosemite National Park. She defines a naturalist as someone who really just pays attention to the natural world with all five of their senses and also beyond that and she'll explain that further in the interview um it's really cool we start out talking about being a park ranger and her experience in the national parks in india and nepal and how they operate operate differently and also similarly to the parks in the u.s we also go into what it was like raising kids in the park and the perks of that. Um, We also, there are some breaks when some neighbors pop by for eggs, which is all part of the experience of (laughs) growing up or living, excuse me, right outside a national park. And um, we also talk about the concessionaires a little bit and ravens and all sorts of stuff. Y'all are going to have a great time. I also want to include that Eliza was listening in on this interview as well. So if you hear someone's uh, voice other than me, that is Eliza, uh, Karen's daughter, who was listening in on the interview and contributed a little bit as well. So without um, further ado, I'm going to uh, pull it over to Karen and let her take it away. So, we are recording. Yay. So, welcome to the Parkies podcast through Zoom, a fun technological adventure. (laughs) So, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and what you're doing. Hi, my name's Karen Amstutz, and I'm a supervisory park ranger here in Yosemite National Park. In my district of the park, I think it's, it's, you know, one of the the best places in the world, the high country based in Tuolumne Meadows on the Tioga Road. Right now it's it's still closed off um, to visitors and to all of us, unless you can walk up there. So I love the wild place up there. Yeah, awesome. So where are you from and is like, have you been a park ranger your whole career or is this like a second career of sorts? Well, good question. I grew up in the Bay Area of California, the San Francisco Bay Area, and grew up having a cabin in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the Lodgepole Pines. And I think my whole life I've been, um, what I didn't know as a child is called a naturalist, which is somebody who pays deep, close attention to the natural world. And asks questions all the time and being able to roam around in the mountains is what really set me up for the career that I've had since I was before I got out of college my first job um, out of college too was as a naturalist and sometimes I was a camp naturalist in summer camps and I was a naturalist for East Bay Regional Parks um, and a naturalist for the Yosemite Institute eventually, which is what brought me to Yosemite. And in Yosemite, once I realized I wanted to stay here for indefinitely and 
buy our house here and have a job, um, I realized I could work for the park service and still be a naturalist interpreter, park ranger. So that is what the short story of what got me here. Yeah. To this, this career spot anyway. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard, um, getting into the park system is pretty hard, like getting a full time or like a permanent position. Did you find that as well? Or did you, how'd you weasel your way into the park system? <laughs> I wish I was that weaselly. I, uh, I have been a seasonal for most of my career and it really worked well, especially being in the ephemeral, ephemerally opened part of the park in Tuolumne Meadows and the high country. So I've, I've worked an extended season in Yosemite Valley and worked as a High Sierra Loop Trip leader, um, which is a backpacking trip within the Park Service and um, here in Yosemite. I, I think it worked really well being a parent and working seasonally, married to somebody who is a teacher because I worked in the summers. And um, Paul, Eliza's dad, worked in you know the school year. So we we balanced that out with um, a little bit of daycare here and there. And we had full coverage year round of our children. And um, that was the most important thing. The job that I knew I didn't wanna, didn't wanna make any shortcuts or um, compromises was in being a parent and working for the park service as a seasonal worked really well for that. Nice. So I, I do feel like I, there was a there was a time when I wished that it was easier to become permanent, um, but I guess for me personally, I wasn't willing to make the sacrifices and not be with my family as much. So we were able to do a lot of a lot of great adventures, including living overseas and and working overseas for a school year and part of a school year, with our kids being more immersed in. Uh, schools overseas in India and in Nepal. And that was, those were priceless experiences that really were touchstones for our family and for our daughter's educations. So anyway. Yeah, so it turned out for the best. It sounds turned like. Way for the best, yep. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So jumping off from those international experiences, Eliza's told me you've worked in, um, or you've interacted with the park system in India and Nepal? Yes, we, um, before Eliza was born, we considered living in Nepal and having our baby in Nepal and working for the parks there. But um, I'm glad we, uh, we took the jobs here in Yosemite instead. It's been glorious to be here. Um, we did take parts of a year off two times and. One time we lived in India because Paul got a Fulbright to go and teach in India and we lived in Bangalore and what I was doing wasn't teaching. It was being part of a, a group called India Nature Watch. And many of them worked in national parks. Many of them were naturalists, birders especially. And so I went on some trips, went on a couple training trips with them and a couple of photography trips to other parks. And on one trip, I, I'm betting this is the story that Eliza thinks of. It, it kind of, it's, for me, it's about paying attention. And when people ask me all the time, what do you do? What is a naturalist anyway? And I think being a naturalist is paying attention with all your senses, more than just the five that we talk about, you know, all the, the five senses. We have so many more senses, including sense of beauty, sense of curiosity, sense of wonder, sense of fear and danger. So this story, uh, one of the trips I got to go on was to the national park um, in kind of the center of India. And it is, it's called Pench National Park, little known park. But if you think of Mowgli and the Jungle Book, it's where, it's where that real story took place mm. of the Jungle Book where a real young child was raised by wild animals. And so we went up there because it was a, it's a great place in the winter to see animals, frosty cold. 
um, being up there, people think of India as the steamy jungle, but it, in the winter can be really cold. It's one of the things I remember. So we went out every day and all the photographers that were together, there were maybe 50, 60 people there and only two of us were women. That was interesting. Mm. The um, trips were all, you can't walk around in this national park because there really are animals who could eat you. And we, we were out on Jeeps all day long and mostly people were photographers and they were looking for the tigers, of course, and the leopards and the big animals. And those are the animals that can do some harm. And so you stay on the Jeeps, you're not allowed to walk around, I'll reiterate. So we were out on Jeeps all day and the Jeep I was on, some, some photographers have a Jeep all to themselves because their tripod takes up the whole thing. But I was the only one with just binoculars and everyone, <laughs> I was on a Jeep with I think three or four people. And to my joy and surprise, we saw a tiger off in the distance and with binoculars, it, it was really exciting to see a tiger, it was pretty cool. And at the end of the day, we came back and it turns out that my Jeep was the only one to see a tiger. And oh. everyone was so jealous that Americans saw a tiger, no fair. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's cool. But we also saw a Scops owl and a Franklin. And I named off all the birds that I was, I have to say, <laughs> more excited to see than the tiger. The tiger's way off. It wasn't interacting with us in any way. It didn't seem like it cared about our presence or anything. So everyone was still really jealous. They, they had lenses longer than my arm. They could have brought that tiger right in and made it look like they were <laughs> so close to the tiger. So anyway, we all joked about how I was the only one that saw a tiger, my Jeep. And the little group of friends that I had there decided, let's go for a walk. And because you can't walk inside the park, we decided we could walk on this peripheral road around the edge of the park. So we took off and walked on this red dirt road that skirted right along the border of the national park. And it was really beautiful evening light, kind of golden light coming through the trees and saw all these beautiful golden green woodpeckers and colorful birds. And the birds were really loud. And um, some of them were even singing, even though it was December. And it was a really nice time to be out. And all at once, one of the other people in the group said, let's go down the Nala, which is this little side, not a canyon, but a drain, drainage ditch kind of area. And so we turned and walked down into this low point. And as soon as we got down there, I felt a little nervous because we couldn't see much of anything. We were surrounded by this wall of vegetation. And so we get down there, we're walking and as we're walking, we're looking up at there's a whole group of langurs up in the trees, these beautiful monkeys with white faces with a black square of skin on their face, long tails just curling up. And they're really, really beautiful. And they're grooming, kind of pulling things out of each other's hair and eating them and talking to each other. You can hear them chattering. And all of a sudden, they got quiet and they started looking around. They started looking at, at something off in the distance and they, um, they looked off in the distance and they, um, they uh, sorry, I got distracted. My neighbor just came in with eggs. Oh, <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> we could take a break for that. Phyllis <laughs> yeah. break, Phyllis, I'm, I'm uh, doing an interview. <laughs> <laughs> so these langers look off and I could tell they're looking at something and the, they look and all of a sudden the sound that was so loud it just pierced the desert or the jungle and they made these sounds over and over and all their little black faces were facing down and they um the whole jungle at that moment got quiet. It got cold and quiet. Mm. All the birds just started. <laughs> All the birds just stopped <laughs> their sounds and it was quiet. And I swear 
it got cold all of a sudden. Mm. The temperature seemed to drop and the the um, jungle was all about this alarm call that these langers were giving. And they were watching something. You could see from way up in the tree, their little faces were moving to the side. And as their faces moved to about here, this sound, other sound started and and my whole body was frozen. I wasn't breathing, I think, the whole time. And we were all, I looked to my my mates that were with me and they all looked at me and they said, it's okay. (laughs) So I felt like, I guess it's okay. But I was terrified. Something deep in me was just really paralyzed with fear. And as the little Langer faces got over here a little, we heard whoop, whoop. And one of the friends I was with said, it's a barking deer. And all the other sounds are going on. And they get over to this side a little bit more and the langers stop, start quieting down a little bit. And then, and the langers start going back to what they were doing, but they're still watching. They're looking around and they're watching. And I started breathing a little bit more, but still the alarm calls were intermittent, but they still were going on. looking and the baby ones that were up there there were a couple babies just they went right back to snuggling in and whoo once got quiet again and the langers were still checking making sure everything was okay and I breathed a big breath finally that relaxed my body a little bit and I looked to the friends I was with and this one guy Hector said that tiger was really close Oh my gosh. I knew it. I knew. And I was so blown away with my body's response. I'd never heard those sounds before. I'd never been in that jungle or that kind of jungle before. But something innate in me and in all of us, no doubt, knows about the alarm call in a forest, wherever we are. And that to me was the coolest thing. And when I went back that night and we were sharing stories of our days around the campfire, that was the best story that I got to take home with me way better than a close-up shot of a tiger. I had the full body, just imagery of all the chemistry that my body used to experience that tiger. So for me, that embodies what it's what it's all about to be a naturalist and whether I'm wearing the park service uniform or not. <laughs> yeah, that's quite the story. Yeah. <laughs> I had a tiger come close and it, do you think maybe because you were in such a large group, that's why it didn't mess with you or just maybe? Well, really there were five of us and I, I honestly don't think that that tiger wanted to, wanted to come close to a group of humans. I mean, it couldn't see us at all we were behind a real thick blind of vegetation but you know that tiger could smell us and sense oh, yeah. us uh-huh. if my human body was sensing danger in the forest the tiger was probably coming up with a complete image five humans <laughs> really scared <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. i i don't feel like tigers and animals like that want to come after humans in a group, especially unless they're really hungry or unless we're alone or yeah. Mm-hmm. Plenty of deer in that forest, I can tell you. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably what I was more interested in. Yeah. 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 So one quick more quick question about the parks in India. Are they mostly like Jeep tours? Is how you interact with them? It's a little less like American parks where you can drive through and stuff like that. Or are there parks where there's roads and stuff? Um, there are there are all kinds of parks. Most of the parks that are down in the lower um, elevations, you know, like uh, um, the one I was in, 
those are parks where you need to be in a Jeep. Sometimes there's a road where you're on a bus and going through the park, but you're certainly not going to walk through parks like that. And it's because you're going to encounter elephants or tigers or leopards or somebody who really could eat you. And the, the national parks in India mostly are funded by protection of those animals because they're all some kind of threatened, endangered species. And so that's where the money comes from. That's the whole focus of those national parks. Mm -hmm. And so all the other animals that are living among um, those big animals, especially birds, those are the ones that are incidentally protected by living in those places. But you have animals that migrate all up, up into Siberia from Southern India and all across the Asian continent. So protecting national park little spots in, in India that are the national parks for those animals is, I mean, I could talk about conservation in India, but that's one of the biggest things is you need to protect the whole flyway if you're gonna address birds. And even with elephants, trying to keep an elephant into a place that's designated is really difficult. They can stomp down any fence, they trample crops, they trample villages, they knock down houses. So um, it's just because they need a huge area and they do migrate too. So it's really interesting thinking of a national park conservation in a place like India. And there's so many humans there too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There are of course national parks in the mountains in India and in Nepal that are, you know, high mountain national parks where you're absolutely going to be walking, not driving. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's a road that goes up near the national park, but there are some that are just trails, maybe with a helicopter pad nearby or a little landing strip. But it's, it's really, that's changing too. There's a lot of road building, but mountain national parks are like they are here that way with access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's cool to hear how different countries operate their park system. Yeah, so, yeah, that's pretty cool. But yeah. I'm gonna um, pivot back to the US, <laughs> to Yosemite. <laughs> um, have you always worked? What what meadow area did you say you worked at? Tuolumne Meadows. Well, have you always been stationed there? Or uh... um, for 15 years. So before that, I was working in Yosemite Valley fairly exclusively. You know, Yosemite, just like with wildlife, I, I cross the border sometimes, but working <laughs> in the high country, leading backpacking trips had me in the high country, but mostly Yosemite Valley before I was in Tuolumne Meadows. Yeah. Eliza said you've got a cabin up there. Is that I like, do. yeah, is that yeah, like your little summer recluse cabin? <laughs> or <laughs> not so reclusive. We have a great little ephemeral community up there, mm -hmm. and it's really, it's a really sweet cabin. The cabin is the oldest building in Tuolumne Meadows, so it's it's really historic. Mm -hmm. It's called the Naturalist Cabin. I feel like I'm. I've got something to live up to being a naturalist up there. Yeah, that's super cool. So would like Eliza and her sisters come up in the summers then and stay in the cabin or did they mainly stay in town? Well, both. They When I first started working up there, Paul, their dad, my husband was a volunteer. So he was, I wasn't the supervisor then. We were living in a tent cabin, all of us together. And that was really great. It was a couple of really fun summers of them building forts and building little fairy houses in the <laughs> sticks and backpacking all summer with them and having them just spend days walking around and swimming in the river and being, being free in the high country. It was really great. But since after those couple of years with Paul volunteering, they definitely came up and spent some time up there but 
you know, then they got busy with summer camps and other things kids are obligated to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jobs. <laughs> jobs, summer jobs, but they also, um, they started school so early. I'm up there till October and they would start school in mid-August sometimes. Uh, so mm-hmm. That also meant they'd have to start with sports if they were playing sports by beginning of August. And yeah, so that really shortened our summers up there together. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that of like, I guess, raising kids in a park as a parent, did you think it was like the best thing ever? Or did it cause some anxieties? Uh, <laughs> no, anxiety. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, sometimes I think a lot of us would, um, can you still hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. My screen just got small for a second. Um, yeah, you know, there we're always, as parents, I think we always question, is this the best thing we could be doing? And are our kids disadvantaged because the school isn't as good here? Is it too small a population? Is it not diverse enough? And I think by mixing it up, living in Nepal and India, having them go to school in really different settings, that that offset that worry. So mm-hmm. but I, I never, ever really questioned the the wondrous luck that we had it's not really luck we made some choices but um you know we're I think the other thing is we you know had to live live pretty simply living here because we're not gonna you know make as much money as we would if we lived in a city or lived in a bigger population area that's absolutely not the most important thing in life though. And when we really stepped back and looked at the benefits our kids were getting by being able to live in a really safe place, to live in a place where they knew the whole community. You know, we all talk about how it takes a village, but really, really here, our kids were raised by this village. And I'm not talking about just humans, I'm talking about being raised with wildlife bears coming into our house sometimes and oh my gosh you're walking through our yard and finding fox poop right outside their door in the morning and getting to sleep outside knowing that all these animals might be around and skunks walking up to the back door and raccoons (laughs) and you know having parents that felt really really um tuned in to all the wildlife and the seasons changing and we live right on the river, so you're hearing the river rising and falling through the, the seasons too. And being able to ski here in a really nice small ski area where it just feels like skiing in your backyard. Um, all of these things are benefits that are far better than anything we could have reaped anywhere else. So I think we every day we feel really lucky and we're, impressed with how our our kids turned out so far (laughs) so far people always say you guys have done such a great job as parents how do you do it and I think in large part it's because we raised them here and Mm -hmm. a lot of people other adults you know I remember when Eliza went to college she said one of the weirdest things about being in college is that everybody's the same age. And I think it made our kids realize once they left here that um, they consider everyone in our community a friend, not just somebody that's stratified into their same age group like we do in our culture, but rather, you know, here you have friends that are our friends that are more our age, that our, our daughters all felt were their friends as well as ours and they never really thought about separating out ages with people so those those are just off the top of my head some of the best things about being raised here you know we can go rafting in the spring season and our daughters have gotten really proficient at rowing boats down whitewater and at backpacking and rock climbing and Things that are considered really special are are really integral to our lives here. So 
I could go on about all the benefits, but those are some of the big ones. I think living closely to the natural world is the best thing we could have ever given our daughters. Mm -hmm. I would definitely agree with that because something I loved about working in the parks is it showed me, especially coming from Iowa, which is like a rural state, <laughs> even though like I was in the city of Des Moines, um, it shows you just that the world's a bigger and better place and there's so many people living differently than you. And you're right, like I had my first season in Yellowstone, I had a friend who was like 35 and <laughs> just like age isn't really a factor in the parks. It's, it's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Karen and I then go on to talk about the concessionaires and the relationship between the parks and the concessionaires. For those of y'all who don't know, a concessionaire is normally a private company that comes in and they operate the hotels and the restaurants in the area and the park service. Um, their job is more uh, like ranger talks and conserving the park and keeping it updated while the concessionaire more works with the hospitality side. So Karen and I talk about the interesting relationship between the two, including the unique challenge that a lot of concessionaires have, especially it, when it's a national corporation, but they have to still be so specific with each park and each and the challenges that come with each park. So Karen then goes on to detail some of those challenges that um, Yosemite has and as well as the history with the concessionaires in the park. Enjoy. Some other challenges are, for example, climate change is really hitting Yosemite hard. And, and I think anywhere, if you look close enough, it's hitting hard and with fires and drought um, a lot more, uh, there are a lot more challenges with keeping certain things open and now we have a pandemic. So I think having the model of a, a corporation in a national park trying to, you know, trying to profit, it's, it's really difficult. And that's kind of all I'm going to say about that. Okay. That makes I, sense. Really, I really can't get political about this or yeah. opinionated personally about it. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I've always thought it was interesting the way concessionaires were a private company operating in a government entity with the Park Service, which is, a, it's just an interesting mix to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in, you know, before 1920, there were a whole lot of concessionaires in the park and we have partners also that benefit here in the park, but we have one um, concessioner that is able to run the hotels and the food and all the businesses that are around those kinds of visitor services. But before 1920, we had a whole bunch of them, lots of different hotel owners and you know, the Yosemite Park and Curry Company started in the 20s. So ever since then, we've had this, this model, but the difference is that that, I won't call it a corporation, but that partner was born and raised here in Yosemite. It wasn't a corporation that was nationwide. It wasn't a, a, a corporation at all, in fact. So that has changed over the years. And mm -hmm. yeah, I will say it is, it is a little strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of concessionaires will try to win contracts in certain places as a way to draw more employees to them as well and to get people to work for them. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, because like um, I worked in Glacier as well. Oh. And the whole east side of Glacier used to be all owned by one concessionaire. And then the park gave many Glacier to Zantera instead of pursuit and it was like this whole thing switching over hands and it was like Zantera wanted it to attract more people to work in Glacier for them it, there's like whole yeah whole games going on there yeah, yeah. That is really, got some insight 
<laughs> Mark's front worked on the inside. Yeah, I just know what I've heard. <laughs> I yeah. just I may be spreading rumors, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. But this is all just things I've heard. But yeah, it's interesting. It is. Yeah. Cool. I guess some other quick questions I had are so as a naturalist, um, are you leading hikes? Are you doing more like interpretation at a visitor center? Um, what do you do? up in to something meadows. Tuolumne. Tuolumne. I'm going to learn the name, I swear, by the end of the interview. Yeah, yeah we have a visitor, a, a longtime visitor who says, you remember it by saying, follow me to Tuolumne. Oh, <laughs> I like and that. Tuolumne, we have a long tradition of having naturalist programs. And those are, you can picture the classic ranger led flower walk and we had a famous ranger, Carl Sharsmith, who was a ranger in Yosemite for 63 years. Wow. And he died in his early 90s, but he, he came up every summer. He was also a professor at San Jose State um, University, but he was legendary. He led walks all day, walks up mountains with big groups of people. We don't do that anymore with giant groups of people, but he would have people crawling around looking at flowers and hand lenses and and looking at bugs and you know just enchanting people with stories about natural history and that embodies the stories of naturalists in Tuolumne Meadows we're we're the part of the park that's a lot more remote a lot more wild it's a jumping off place for day hikes and backpacking trips it's you know, a quarter mile in on any trail and you're in wilderness. So we have a lot, a lot more, um, a lot more wilderness kind of themed programs up there, all day hikes. Now that I'm a supervisor, I don't personally lead as many walks, but that's what we, my program is all about just connecting people with the wild place up there. And we do that by doing naturalist programs, um, bird walks, flower walks, geology walks, and most of those traditionally have been two-hour walks for the last 20 years. But we do all-day hikes every single night of a more typical summer. We have campfire talks that are centered around one of these topics, and um, we do we do talks and walks on the river. The watershed, um, on climate change, on uh, yeah, plants, trees, yeah, stars, star programs. We have <laughs> more than a hundred people at our night sky programs, and um, it's do y'all have star kind of, parties? We do. We don't call <sighs> them star parties, but okay. yes, we do. We have programs where people come out. We start them at nine thirty at night, and people are mm -hmm. laying. They bring warm things in a pad and we lay on a dome, a slab of rock and look up at the clear, dark night sky, which oh, I'm sure that's... you have experienced. And <laughs> yeah. Magical. It's, I think it's amazing. Gives me hope for our species. <laughs> yeah. People want to do these things still and they mm -hmm. still fill up in large numbers. And I think especially the night sky, because a lot of people have never really looked at the night sky if they've lived in a city their whole life where they don't really see stars. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are, we, we do some, we have a natural history festival that's for a whole weekend. We do a poetry festival along with other talks in our historic lodge. And we have other talks that are, by other presenters and that's one of my jobs now is to coordinate the summer series of programs that we host in the historic lodge and some of those are authors and some are um, writers poets um, speakers of all kinds I've had some really amazing people especially poets Gary Snyder has been one of our speakers Terry Tempest Williams um, David James Duncan, Elizabeth Colbert, a lot of people who are talking about things that we touch on, but we love to bring in people who are renowned for 
writing or speaking on these topics. So um, that's one of the, the biggest joys of my job too. Not this year so yes. much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably haven't had as many. Or have you had to like limit the amount of people in groups with COVID and stuff? Yeah, last year we couldn't do any programs at all. And this oh, gosh. year we're going to open it up a little bit more and do what we call pop-up programs. I don't know if you did those, but they're sort of a spontaneous, small, short program that we we don't advertise. We just go to a place that's generally busy and have a, a more audience-centered style of program, not the ranger talking to the people kind of program. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Gotcha. Hopefully as the summer continues, you'll be able to open up more and more. Yeah, I sure hope so. Yeah. So speaking of um, your talks is I heard from Eliza that ravens are one of your favorite birds. <laughs> and I will say my only experience with ravens is working housekeeping. They would like Yellowstone or Grand Canyon, they would just get in my trash and spread my trash around. So I was not, a, I'm not a huge fan. And so I'm looking <laughs> to you to perhaps convert me. <laughs> Do you have any well, fun facts? <laughs> I think they're brilliant and they're so interesting. And they're also a lot like humans, you know, causing a lot of trouble. And <laughs> they're also really, really, uh, really successful as a species so they're a lot like us they're they're overpopulating in fact uh, um, mm -hmm. when I first started looking at ravens it was almost 30 years ago and got to be part of some studies and I, I developed a whole evening program about them which I don't really give that much anymore and partly well I started out really just being enamored with them and enchanted by how smart they are and how how their life cycle is and they live a long time and they're so adaptable. And uh, as years went by, I found that I was telling the story of humans too. And all the things mm. that really sort of terrify me about our own overpopulation and over exploitation of resources, <laughs> it's really coming out in ravens too. And so I, um, yeah, I've, I haven't found a really happy place, honestly, with ravens in the last few years they they are showing up in bigger numbers than they ever have here in Yosemite and in the high country I used to see maybe one pair of ravens once in a while in a summer and this last summer I saw groups of 30 to 60 ravens holy every cow day. I didn't know and they came in that big of groups hey Paul's home it's so dark <laughs> I know you can flip on the light. Oh, glowing face. Who's I that? Know. I'm doing an interview. With for who? Eliza and Allison. Oh, hi. <laughs> hey, Paul. <laughs> so with, with that, I, I'm really concerned because the main thing ravens eat are, well, are baby animals, especially baby mm. birds and eggs. They're real nest predators and um, they're their presence means that other birds are really taking a hit. So I worry when I see a lot of ravens and we keep enabling them in other areas, new areas they never lived before. You know, they're, they're responsible for the diminishing population of desert tortoises, for example. And anyway, I know this is not the angle that you were asking. <laughs> I know she's not getting converted. Well, I think you, I still think it's fascinating the way you were able to draw parallels between ravens and their behavior and human behavior and how you're concerned for both species. So I'm, I'm like maybe 50% converted. <laughs> They're interesting. They're definitely yes. very interesting and fascinating. Maybe one of the most interesting things, and, and you can keep your eyes out for this, is their partnership with humans and that they really keep an eye on us for um, their own benefit. And sometimes that looks like, you know, people feeding them directly. There are people here in the park that work for the concessioner, I'll say. Oh, no. Tried so hard to get them to stop feeding the ravens because when you mm -hmm. feed ravens, you give them an advantage and you help their population grow and other birds, you know, start, their population starts really diminishing. So the, um, that's one thing they, they start, they start really um, 
paying attention to where we're hitting animals on the road, for example. So they'll follow cars or they'll find out that there's this one stretch of the road that squirrels get hit all the time and they'll make a nest in that spot. Or down the river from us, there's a stoplight in a place with a rock slide. Never was a stoplight there before, but there's a raven nest right next to it because they know cars are gonna stop there and they're going to be stopped there for 15 minutes and people will toss food out the window at the ravens. And it doesn't take them long to learn about this, you know, those kinds of perks when they associate with humans. And people have always associated with ravens as far as we all know. There are a lot of stories about how ravens um, led people to caribou herds in the far north or um, helped wolves or coyotes find an animal that had died before anyone else. And it's not just altruism, it's these animals need humans to help them secure a kill or a, a find. So humans and ravens have really been partners all along. It's really, that is one of the things that honestly is blown my mind and fascinated me about them they're they're really good at building that relationship with us no wonder they're so successful i know <laughs> it maybe so... it's their fault that we're so successful too <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's a really i'm gonna ponder that for a little bit <laughs> yeah. for sure well well, I think I'm going to start to wrap us up here. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention, Karen or Eliza? Anything else you wanted to mention? Y'all want to talk about anything, Eliza? Uh, well, you're going to interview me later, right? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a cool story, but <laughs> there's a lot of them. Um, I don't know. We can't think of anything right now. Yeah, I I have just been thrilled that I, we have one more daughter who's still here, and this summer she's going to be working in the in the mountains, you know, working at a, a backpacking summer program. Oh, and nice! Eliza's leading backpacking trips, and Sylvia's <laughs> other daughter is working in Colorado, in the mountains, leading or helping lead trips for actually a, a really great program. Um, and it makes me so happy to know that it's in their, in their blood. It's one of those things that um, defines who they are, I think, as people, um, that they have this connection with the natural world and feel that comfortable in the mountains that, um, you know, are, our youngest daughter, Eliza too, and their sister, Sylvie, all have gone on backpacking trips in high school without parents. And that's, that. I bring that up just because people always ask us, do you feel like that's okay? Is that safe? Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a safer place than mm -hmm. being in the wilderness and building those skills that ability to pay attention with your whole body those things that have have brought me so much joy and um grounding in my life that i have examples of how my daughters feel that deep down makes me feel i guess it makes me feel successful as a parent <laughs> i don't have you know i, I didn't didn't grow up having um that as a goal for myself or for my daughters but I, I really do feel that it's something that I would have aspired to be as a parent is somebody who could liaise that in in them as well so yeah I think there's nothing I could wish for my kids more I don't care if they have a lot of money or I mean I want them to have enough of everything they need to survive, <laughs> but I I think being that kind of happy in their lives is what I would wish for them or for anyone thank you yeah. uh, well they definitely get their love of the outdoors from you so 
cool to see. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up. Karen, thank you so much for your time. And and there you go. Another episode of the Parkies podcast. This time, a two-part episode with a mother and daughter for this Mother's Day. And this part one is with Karen, who is the mom of our mother-daughter duo and um, has been a park ranger in Yosemite National Park for a minute now. I didn't get the exact years, but it's been a while, which is pretty cool. I love how Karen was able to draw a parallel between Raven's behavior and human's behavior. So if y'all caught that in the episode, that's definitely something I'm gonna keep thinking about. And uh, I would encourage everybody else as well. Karen also mentioned how her daughters went backpacking without an adult in high school and I think that people, especially women, are a lot safer in the outdoors than they tend to be like walking down a city street and so if you wanted more perspective on that, the She Explores has a podcast and episode 117, Safer Alone in the Backcountry, with Sarah Grothjen. Details that a little bit more if you're interested in exploring that topic. But other than that, Karen, it was really cool to see how proud Karen was of her daughters and everything they've been doing. So we will hear from one of those daughters in part two. So stay tuned and check it out. Happy trails, y'all. And come out to Tuolumne Meadows sometime. Tuolumne Meadows. I got the name. <laughs> yeah. I've wanted to go there. I just haven't yet. It's, it's on the list. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Way different from Iowa. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> That's <for sure>. Thankfully <laughs> so. <laughs>